Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Adam Goodrow and Dr. Anthony Nye, who are residents at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Adam is a sixth-year resident. He's originally from Ludlow, Massachusetts. He went to the College of William and Mary for undergrad and the VCU School of Medicine for medical school. His interests include craniofacial surgery, encompassing pediatric and adult maxillofacial reconstruction, molecular diagnosis of vascular malformations, and healthcare literacy research. Anthony is a third-year resident. He's originally from Indianapolis, Indiana. He went to Bob Jones University for undergrad and the University of South Carolina in Greenville for medical school. His research interests include complementary medicine, novel nicotine delivery systems, socioeconomics, and diversity in plastic surgery. Adam, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Jenna, thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Excellent. So I'd love to start with kind of an overview of the structure of your program at VCU. So we are a six-year program. We are only an integrated program. We do not have any independent pathway here at VCU. I know one of the things most commonly talked about is the experience in junior resident years, and I'm a third year, so I'll talk about those. But we actually complete all of our general surgery training in the first two years. Our intern year, you will have about four months of exposure to plastic surgery. That continues on into the second year as well. But then by the third year, you're considered to be actually done with all of your general surgery training, and it's full force on plastic surgery and then plastic surgery tangential electives. Like we do hand rotations. You'll have an extra month of anesthesia or time with our ENT colleagues in specific, but it's not really any of the general surgery, trauma surgery, transplant surgery. Those are all completed in the first two years. Some things about the experience when you're on non-plastic services. I think that here, one of the benefits is we have such a strong collaborative nature with the not plastic surgery programs. They treat us really well. And it was always in my experience that those rotations were meant to be how they could best help me as a plastics resident. That's what really stood out to me. It was not them trying to have me as just like an extra body to write notes and see patients. When I was on surgeonc, there was less of having me go in for the Whipple case and more of me doing things that would be melanoma, breast cases, or any of like the head and neck malignancies. So it really was trying to see what I needed for my training specifically. And I think that was pretty characteristic of my whole experience when I was on general surgery or those kind of preliminary rotations in the first two years. But then I think it's great that by the third year, we are really going on plastic surgery and the things that we need. So I think that's really exciting and I'm really happy to be in a place that does that. And what are some of the different sites that you work at? Yes, we have one main site where most of the residency activities take place. We call it downtown. It's just situated in downtown Richmond, but it's our main hospital. In addition to that, we do have many rotations at the VA, both when you're in those first and second year general surgery years. You will spend time with the general surgery and vascular surgery services at the VA, but we also have a plastic surgery service there. We've made a push to have that be mostly a junior resident experience, the plastics experience at the VA, just because the caseload is a little bit simpler and it's an opportunity for more junior residents to get some autonomy doing cases that the senior residents probably feel very comfortable. We do have a children's hospital. It's currently being constructed. So it's right now in its current state is just an outpatient pavilion. 
in the spring of 2023, it is expected to open the inpatient tower, which is shaping up to be quite an addition to the city's skyline. Other than that, we don't have any other hospitals that we're covering in terms of call coverage. We do spend time in the community working with local plastic surgeons to augment our aesthetics experience, but we certainly aren't expected to cover any call outside of our main hospital. I think you said there are no independent residents, and do you work with any fellows? Within the Division of Plastic Surgery, we do not have any fellows. It's been a matter of philosophy for the division to make this a resident-forward program. Uh, There is, in the Department of Surgery, a hand fellow that we do interface with when we're on our hand rotation, uh, which is cross-covered. It's like a hybrid rotation where you spend some time with plastics and some time with the orthopedics. When you're with the orthopedists, you will spend time with the hand fellow. But it's nice, as I get towards the end of my training, I'm very happy to not have fellows, especially as I'm about to become a fellow. I tell people who interview is, when you're um, in your position and applying for residencies, everyone says, don't worry, the fellows don't take your cases. And then when you're in my position, having just applied for fellowship, everyone says, oh, don't worry, the residents don't take your cases. So I just believe that at some point there's some crosstalk there where some cases are getting picked up. So it's nice not having to worry about that. And then from a microsurgery standpoint, not having a microfellow is awesome because I get to go under the scope. I get the vessels out. I help get the flaps out, whatever we need to do during a case. It all goes to me and the attending that's assigned to that case. And can you walk me through? what call is like across different years, and then also how it's split between like hand and face. We split hand with our ortho residents. So it's every other week. And then we share face with ENT and OMFS. And so how that practically works out is that once every six weeks, we only cover plastic surgery consults. And then otherwise we would be on hand or face. So hand shared with ortho and then ENT and OMFS for face call. It's really nice to have that once out of six weeks reprieve where we're just covering our plastics only consults and usually ends up in those weeks, we get the things that are actually genuine plastic surgery, reconstructive consults, some pediatric plastic surgery consults. So it's not like there's nothing, it's just more targeted. And it is nice to have that smaller reprieve. For how it looks as you go through the years, In our intern year, you're completely protected from any call responsibilities with plastic surgery itself. You are seeing consults from the day one when you come here, when you're on plastic surgery as the plastics intern. And we have a pretty strong model for seeing patients, coming up with a plan and assessment, and then staffing that with either upper level residents or even working directly with attendings. So we try to get people up and running pretty quickly with making plans and implementing that after seeing consults. But you do not have any overnight call responsibilities as an intern. We do start taking call overnight in our second year. And then we have a split model between junior level residents and senior level residents where we do have a buddy call system. A junior resident would be paired with a senior resident. You're really developing that eye and really your clinical decision-making skills, but you have the safety net of an upper level resident to talk about things with before you talk to attendings. It's a great time to have procedural skills because you're the one in the ED. You are the face of plastic surgery for here in Richmond, at least in our hospital. And that's really fun, I I think, as a junior resident to get those kind of things started. We cover usually about seven nights is the average so far a month. And you do that in your second and third year. And then we transition to more senior level responsibilities for call when you get into the four or five and six. The four or five and six or whoever is paired as a senior 
is really there to offer the guidance on junior level questions. And they also are there for procedures if there's anything that's never been done before and can come in and help you out, or they are helpful with operative cases that go overnight. And that's how we usually split the call responsibilities. One other thing to really highlight that may be different from other programs is we have a combined hand service for our call, meaning that we do not staff consults only with plastics hands attendings. So we actually staff with ortho hand attendings as well. And vice versa, the ortho residents are staffing with our plastics hands attendings. And I really enjoy that experience because it just offers a diversity of um, training backgrounds, ways of approaching problems, managing different cases differently. And just you get a, a broader scope of how you can really address hand problems when you're seeing them. So I really think it's a benefit. And I think that working with ortho attendings so intimately from really our intern year augments our hand experience greatly. And so I think that's a great thing to talk about. And what is the mid-level support? On the inpatient side, we have two mid-levels or APPs as they're known around our hospital. We have a nurse practitioner who helps, mostly helps the interns and the chief resident kind of run the service. Her principal role is to interface with social work, care coordination, help plan discharges, particularly complex discharges that maybe a new intern would struggle with. And then in addition to that, she just lends help. We're all in the operating room. She'll hold the consult pager during the daytime. If clinics are running over, she'll lend a hand in those clinics. So she's just truly an extender in every sense of the word. Wherever we're stretched a little bit thin, our nurse practitioner steps in to help us. Our other mid-level is a physician's assistant. He's a new hire about a year and a half ago. And she's a surgical physician's assistant, which I think when she was hired, I I can say all the residents were up in arms about it because we didn't know what it was going to look like having a PA in the operating room. And now that I've seen it, I would fight tooth and nail for her to stay in the operating room. It's an incredible asset. Her principal role is to help in the deep flaps. And the way that she helps is she hangs out to help close the belly at the end of the day, honestly. The other thing that she'll do is We have two attending microsurgeries, so one attending is getting the chest vessels for bilateral deep, just because I know deeps are a hot topic during interviews. The attending will do the chest vessel exposure. The chief resident may choose to do either flap elevation or the chest Mm -hmm. vessel exposure. Whatever the chief resident has decided they don't want to do, then the physician's assistant is going to help out with the other thing. If I have a resident that wants to do that case that's more junior, let's say Anthony wanted to do a deep then our physician's assistant will just sit that one out and, and we can run it through. But or we have so many cases going on that there's a things that Anthony would rather be doing than to be a second fiddle in a deep. So having an operative physician's assistant has been very helpful, especially because when it's the end of the deep, the last thing you want to do is close the belly. I know the junior residents always hated being called in to just close the belly and not get to do anything else. So we've totally freed them from that. And are there any opportunities for electives, like in the more senior years, either that you choose within your institution or ones you would go away for? Yeah, it's a good question. This is a very small program. We take two residents per year, and we have a very close relationship with all of our faculty. If a resident demonstrated an interest in wanting to go away, as I have done in the past, the faculty are really supportive of it. I had an interest in craniofacial surgery, wanted to get some more research under my belt. We explored going to Pittsburgh for a time, explored doing some away rotations at potential fellowships, and was wholly supported by the program director and the chair. Then COVID happened and none of those things actually happened. But as we led up to that, we had plans in place and nobody batted an eye at it. Is there a rigid elective structure in our curriculum? No. But if there's something that you're interested in, 
because it's a small program, you have the flexibility to do that kind of thing. And we're such a small, tight-knit group of residents that even if I wanted to say go away for a month or Anthony wanted to go away for a month, we would all step up to fill in the void in the call schedule where no one's ever concerned about that kind of stuff. So, you know, it really allows you to choose whatever career interests you have and explore them a little bit more robustly. And are there any opportunities either for short-term like international trip, or it sounds like maybe you could arrange a one month away rotation if you were interested? Yeah, if you were so interested, I'm sure you could arrange it. And then every year we have a partnership with an organization called World Pediatric Project. It has two cities that it's based out of, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, as well as Richmond, Virginia. It's an organization that works to do two things. One is to bring medical missions teams to Central America, uh, and we're on the list of teams that go. So typically every February, the more senior residents will go. There's two trips, one with one of our craniofacial surgeons, Dr. Rhodes, and one with one of our community surgeons, who's actually been doing it for 30 years go one week followed by the next week. And each of the chief residents typically get to go down there to do that. Again, COVID has been putting things on hold. We're hoping to go this February. The organization is ramping things up. So they're starting to send teams. Uh, and we're expecting to send a team down this year. Other, just while we're on the topic of World Pediatric Project, you know, it's a great asset to have that based here in Richmond. Because the other kind of arm of their objectives is to not only provide surgical services in country, but to be a means for children who have complex surgical needs to come to the United States for their care. So in terms of someone who's interested in craniofacial surgery, such as myself, you're very dependent on the population around you. And if you live in a medium-sized city like Richmond, you will have a reasonable volume of things like craniosynostosis unlikely to see much in the way of syndromic craniosynostosis. We'll have our bread and butter cleft lip and palate. But through World Pediatric Project, I've seen just absolutely incredible cases, fibrous dysplasia of the optic nerve, bilateral Tessier 11s. I've done Tessier 3s. I've seen just a huge number of syndromic kids with craniosynostosis that come through that route. So it really is a boon to our residency training experience in terms of the diversity of things that we see. And what is the cosmetic experience? We do have a resident cosmetic clinic. We say it begins in the fourth year, but usually we try to get the third year residents in there as well, depending on the volume of the clinic. It's been getting busier lately. COVID has shut everything else down, but somehow our resident cosmetic clinic has ramped up. So we've been enlisting the help of any residents that are available. How it's structured, Dr. Luppens is our cosmetic attending. He staffs all of the consults with the residents. And as is probably the case across the country, you see the patient, you own the patient. So the expectation is that you do all the preoperative workup, get them set up for surgery, order their implants if it's a breast case, make sure that they know their expectations, inform consent, and then you find time on your schedule to do it. Again, regardless of what rotation you're on, because it's a smaller program, everyone knows that the expectation is if you have a resident cosmetic case that you can be dismissed from whatever other rotation you're on to go cover that case. And that includes when we're working with our orthopedics colleagues on the hand rotation. Outside of the formal resident cosmetic clinic experience, we have a number of cosmetic attendings here in town that we work with. Principal among them is Nadia Blanchet, who is an icon in Richmond plastic surgery for her breast work, in addition to her facelifts. She's been doing more and more facelifts since the pandemic, usually two or three a week, which has been a great thing to do as a trainee. And she's been working with residents for so long that it's truly not a watch and learn experience. She has 
master the art of getting the resident involved in all of her cases, including facelifts. Rhinoplasty, I know later on in, the, in this, I'm supposed to say what is something I would improve about the program. I would probably say if we had more rhinoplasty experience, that would be one thing I would add. We do have Matt Bridges, who's a community rhinoplasty surgeon. He is ENT trained. So most of what you're going to see is closed rhinoplasty, but it's still helpful to get their insights. And he's always welcoming to our residents to go watch him operate. So with those aesthetic surgeons, do you spend like specific months with them or is it more like intermittent cases when you're on your main service? We spend specific months with them. So we have a, we call it the community rotation. So the expectation is that you choose your own adventure to some extent and you build a rotation that works with a number of cosmetic surgeons in town. Depending on your interests, people have shaped that in different ways. So there are residents who are particularly interested in hand surgery and so build their community rotation to include some of the community hand surgeons to get their perspective. There are some core faculty that you're expected to help cover their cases. So Dr. Blanchet being one of them. That way you can't over choose your own adventure. That way you can't make it a hand rotation when it's really supposed to be your cosmetic rotation. So there's some structure to it about two days a week. And then the other three days a week, you can really choose to go wherever you'd like to go. So we have some oral surgery trained cosmetic community surgeons in town. I've spent some time with them. If there's an interesting case going on downtown, that's maybe off service, like an oral surgery procedure or a hand surgery procedure, you can use that time to flex into those spaces. How many community months do you have in the later years? Four or five a year. And then just to highlight the fact that we actually start that community rotation in our third year. So the first month of my third year was spent in community practice. And as Adam mentioned, one month into being a third year, Dr. Blanchet was heavily involving me in her aesthetic procedures, whether that was at the local community hospital or even her in-office procedures as well. So it's definitely something that I really valued so early on in residency to get started in those because I think it's harder to get that true cosmetic aesthetic experience. You did a facelift as a third year. I did. Many facelifts. Many. And when you said that you're even getting some of the third years involved with the resident cosmetic clinic, at what point would a resident like really, it would be their case they were booking and doing the majority of? We would never like team up residents on one case in the clinic. What I mean by that is if we have a third year that's available and they want to see a patient in the cosmetic clinic because we're busy, then it's their patient. So they would follow it through. Those cases, the attending that Dr. Lepin's very seldom scrubs, he's of course in the room for all of our cases, but he won't scrub into the resident cosmetic cases unless you ask him to. So in those instances, I've had Anthony, he was, I think, what were you, an intern? I was an, I was an intern and I assisted Adam with one of his primary cosmetic cases that he had seen in clinic and would had to the OR and then the day of needed an assistant. So I was available. And to go back to the fact that the other general surgery rotations treat us nicely, I was actually on trauma surgery and Adam was doing a pretty unique cosmetic case. And I just said, hey, I'm probably not going to see this case for several years. And they're asking if I'm free, can I go help? And they were like, sure, just we'll see you later. We always try to get the residents involved with with those cosmetic cases of all levels. And that's probably one of the only examples of double scrubbing that I can think of because you need an extra set of hands in those. The only times that I can really think about double scrubbing in residency so far have been just welcome reliefs. And is there any experience with gender affirmation surgery? There is. Uh, it's all top surgery right now. So I know this gets broken down into three categories, facial femme, 
top surgery and bottom surgery. Dr. Chong is our new chair who's coming to us as the program, former program director from Colorado, who has made inroads in terms of his planning for faculty hires. And near the top of his list is a transgender surgeon. I know that's probably true at most institutions now. It's very in vogue, but we're hopeful to have a bottom surgeon here in the near future. But we have a very robust top surgery experience. It's run by our peds craniofacial surgeon. She really has done a lot for that patient population in terms of creating a multidisciplinary environment for them to get surgical care for their gender dysphoria. And as someone who is trained under her and shares a lot of those philosophies, I think it's a population that's very difficult in terms of how society has let them down. And there are people who are capitalizing on the boon of transgender surgery here, I'm very proud to say that we are physicians first in that regard. We make sure that the whole patient's taken care of, that their whole family is taken care of. And it's great to see that in clinic because it equips you as we try to do better by these patients moving forward. It, it helps to equip you with what the struggle is and, and how we can do better. And then also just to add to how the culture is, especially under the leadership of Dr. Rhodes specifically for this with the development of the new Chore inpatient hospital, and she works heavily with our Children's Hospital of Richmond, she worked closely with the highest levels of leadership with Chore specifically to make sure that we had Chore-specific branding items that were pride-themed. And so she really is out there to make sure that it wasn't just like a badge sticker or something, a rainbow put on something else. She wanted it to be a production-made with our local official things that are available. And that's gone through. And that just shows to me how passionate she is about this population. And she really is looking out for them. Adam said it's a physician first mentality. Can you talk a bit about how resident operative autonomy is assessed and granted and managed over the years? Another hot topic issue during the interviews every year, which is good to discuss. VCU is a program that you will get a lot of operative experience. The autonomy is appropriate. And what I mean by that is the pendulum swings too far in either direction. There are places where you may not operate very much at all, and you're doing a lot of watch and learn. And then there are places where you get too much autonomy, where you're sort of struggling through, and you're maybe learning the wrong way to do things. I've always felt that VCU has struck the sweet spot. Our attendings, if you're acting in an autonomous role in a case, which is very common, they are in the room. It's not that they're leaving you alone. There's never a moment where I feel unsafe. And if I have a question, then to use our program director as an example, last week we did big pec flaps for sternal wound closure. He didn't scrub the case except for the critical portion to say that he scrubbed the critical portion, of course, but he was in the room the whole time. And if I had any questions, he was right there. I didn't need him. I was very happy to not need him, but it's just peace of mind that he's willing to invest his time to sit in the corner to make sure you have a good operative experience but also to make sure that you feel safe and supported. There's a subcategory to this question about what does each PGY year doing during a deep? Again, we're so busy. Typically, we're not double scrubbing cases. And so during a deep, most of the time, it will be the senior resident on service, but not all of the time. And so there are situations where, because I've done so many deeps, and I'm just, frankly, I, I don't need to do any more deeps deeped out, as I'm sure a lot of people have said, if there's cleft palates or an interesting craniofacial surgery case or a unique procedure going on, then I'll swap the coverage. So I'll have the mid-level resident be them a three or a four, do the deep. And in those instances, then they would do the same thing that the chief resident would do. 
There was a deep in recent, uh, a couple of weeks ago where I had Brooks do, it was a bilateral deep. Brooks is one of our third year residents. And he did the artery and vein on one side and I did the artery and vein on the other. I needed a break. He was in the room. He wanted to do it. So we just tapped out. So there, the faculty will let any level resident do any part of that case. They may walk you through it a lot more if you're a third year than if you're a, a chief. None of the faculty would snub a nose at having a third year resident do uh, the lion's share of work in the deep. So let's talk about research a bit, both in terms of expectations and opportunities. I think from a perspective of expectations, I think that we do have what would be considered general, the fact that we are expected to be productive, to have a certain amount, but there's not necessarily a number for us where it's you need to have three papers each year. We have a MD, PhD on our faculty, Dr. Monsiaris, who's joined us from MD Anderson is where she did her microsurgery fellowship, and she has been really a great addition to our team as far as research goes. She is a strong mentor for that. So from that meaning, I trained medical school in a more of a community environment. It was like more community medical center. It was not a research powerhouse. So I think my research experience maybe was not as strong as maybe someone that has trained at a, like a strong powerhouse of an academic center. So for me, my goal is more of really learning how to become a good researcher. And so we have that, but then we have other residents that have really strong research backgrounds to begin with. And then so that focus is different for them. They're just out there cranking stuff out. And so she's able to help them in different areas. So from that kind of opportunities, I think it's really more of who you are as a person coming into residency. We're all a little bit different and we all have different goals. And so we have that support that we need. Dr. Chong, who Adam mentioned, is our new chair who's come from University of Colorado. He's bringing a lot of great resources with him, a lot of new energy to push for getting into publications more, presentations more, really getting us out there from that networking perspective as well. So I know he's just really excited about the things that we've been doing recently. So he's only been here about two months now. This is December of 2021. And so he has told us, we presented all the things that we've been working on recently. And I know he was really excited to see the things that we've been working on, the things that we have planned. As far as research goes, it's ironic. I'm on a one month block for research right now. So I've been in the thick of trying to get as many things done as possible. We do have a research block that's dedicated one month for me in my third year. And we'll see if we add more of those in later years as needed. I would say, see what'll happen is because we have a really strong feedback nature towards developing our program. So if this is something that's really beneficial to residents in the future, we may consider adding more. We'll, we'll just see, but for now it's one month in the third year. And that's really been useful for me working closely with Dr. Monsiaris to get a lot of things done, but there's no specific mandate that you have to have X amount of papers. And we don't have a research year or anything more than that one month block for now. And how about once you are ready to present at, let's say, like a conference, what kind of support's available? So Dr. Chong has brought with him quite a lot of support. It's something that he negotiated as part of his chair's contract, which we're really excited about. Before that, we had institutional support as well. So the funds that the residents get per year, it's $1,200 of what we call PEA or paid educational activity funds. 600 comes from our Department of Surgery, 600 from the GME offices. And that money is used for textbooks, publication fees, attending meetings whatever you need to that would support your education or your scholarly development. If you do have a meeting where you have a presentation accepted, there is additional funds put forth by the Department of Surgery. 
I think it's $300 for travel for any poster and 600 for a podium presentation on top of the PEA funds. And then in addition to that, Dr. Chong has set aside a large chunk of money. I, I don't know the specifics that he says is all for resident research activity. The plan being that if any resident gets a paper accepted, cost is never should be a reason that you don't get to go to a meeting, you don't get to present. The exception probably being, I don't expect that it's going to extend to international meetings just because they're so expensive, but certainly for any national meeting, the expectation is that it will be paid for. And that's already been seen, practically speaking, like he's only been here for three months and three of our residents have already been sent out on trips for conferences or other things. So that's not something that was just said and not happened. It was said and it's been done already. And are there any other particularly awesome kind of perks you'd like to talk about? The things that come to mind quickly that I'm sure your audience will be interested in is that loops are paid for during your intern year. That is something that we feel strongly about, as well as sending our interns to the boot camp every year that many programs attend. I thought it was a great time. I still have some pictures of me casting some of my friends that I remembered from the interview. Other things that I know are of interest are food stipends when you are on call. We are able to base that off of the previous year's call. So the interns today receive X amount of dollars based off of the interns of yesteryear. For me, the fourth years, that's what my third year's money was based off of. And that's the way it works for all of the residencies here at VCU. So it's not that plastics is any different. This is just a GME sponsored food stipend. Works out fine in a terms of amount. I think I had 300 per six months, I think for this year, which is less because it goes down theoretically every year because you're taking less in-house call. Any like micro courses or cadaver labs? We are having a cadaver lab actually coming up next week using some industry sponsoring for that, as well as other courses. It's not that there's anything currently that's, this happens every year. It's more of interest and whether or not a particular residents are interested in going. We've had some people go to conferences in the past, but it's not that anything it's every year. With the arrival of Dr. Chong, we're working more closely with industry, which is great for residency. As you all enter training, you're going to learn that regardless of where you go, funding may be a challenge for some of these educational activities that are quite expensive. And so our industry partners are helping us enormously. This weekend, as Anthony mentioned, Integra is sponsoring this cadaver lab. And I'm working on a number of simulation activities with the different CMF companies, the hand surgery plating companies. All of these are great opportunities for residents to get their hands on, not only with their products, which obviously is their interest in sponsoring these things, but it comes with cadaver dissections led by our faculty. And that really is a, a nice adjunct to our education. And so what area of plastic surgery would you say residents come out with the strongest experience in? VCU is a program, we have a really robust experience in a lot of areas. And because it's a smaller program, we, we're expected to be pretty autonomous in most areas of plastic surgery. I'd say general reconstruction is something, if we had to pick one that we have the most experience in, all of our residents feel very comfortable with local flaps and breast reconstruction. Any one of our four or fives or sixes could raise a gracilis or a VRAM or a pec flap, like all these kind of basic flaps, workhorse procedures. In addition to that, by the time you enter your chief year, you do a ton of microsurgery and it's only going to become more so as we hire an additional, I think Dr. Chung has two lines of funding for, to bring our total up to four microsurgeons. So currently we have two, we're expected to have more than that. Certainly anyone who comes here in the near future will, will see that. 
And as a graduating chief resident, I have six months to go. I feel very comfortable doing all aspects of a deep flap by myself, an ALT flap. I don't think I'm going to do anything particularly crazy or novel because I'm not, I'm not interested in my surgery long-term, but as a general reconstructive plastic surgeon, I could absolutely do free flaps in it, and I feel very comfortable leaving this residency doing them. I know you mentioned maybe a little bit more rhinoplasty experience in terms of something you'd like to see. Any other elements of how you'd like to improve your program? As I mentioned, we cover a lot of the sort of core tenets of plastic surgery here. The novel things that are coming down the pike, a lot of this stuff like feminization procedures for the face, transgender bottom surgery, as we mentioned, some more advanced peripheral nerve stuff, such as facial reanimation. I think that would be nice to see here. I've been in in conversations with Dr. Chong about what the future holds for VCU in terms of his faculty hires. And these are all action items for him. He wants to see those things come here. The city of Richmond can support it. I know that all of these patients are here waiting in the wings or traveling elsewhere. And we want to mitigate that and keep them here for our residents to learn from. So I, I think those are things that are on my wish list for this program. But the other stuff is so robust. If you're interested in hand surgery, you will, other than needing to maybe do a fellowship so you can take an academic position, this is a place where you would not need to do a fellowship to be a hand surgeon. Similarly for microsurgery, if you want to do bread and butter breast micro, you're going to do enough of it here that you'll feel very comfortable. Craniofacial, I'm in a very fortunate position where I've gotten to do a lot in those cases, which is not always the case. As you train in craniofacial surgery, the attendings don't let you do much on the pediatric patients. As I've worked very closely with my mentor, I've had a chance to do a lot of the cutting on palates and lips. I think everyone who's interested in craniofacial has to do fellowships, just the nature of the beast, but it certainly had a good experience in those procedures. So I'd love to hear now a bit more about your program leadership. So I know you've mentioned your new chief, Dr. Chong, maybe a little bit more about his background. Yeah. So Dr. Chong arrived to us on October 1st. Dr. Feldman was our interim chair between that. He's one of our burn surgeons. So Dr. Chong came to us from University of Colorado, as I mentioned, he was their program director. Before that, he was at UT Southwestern, where he was, uh, where he spent his kind of most junior faculty years under the tutelage of Rod Rorick, and then was recruited by Dave Matthews to Colorado to be the program director there when they transitioned to an integrated program. He trained at the University of Pittsburgh and is, for all intents and purposes, a microsurgeon. He trained at a time when you didn't necessarily have to do a fellowship in microsurgery to do it. And he's brought a lot of microsurgical prowess to us. We are excited insofar as he is a lymphedema specialist. And although we haven't started this program yet, it's coming in the spring. And what, what I mean by it's coming is we needed the new microscope. We, have, we don't have a Pantera microscope yet, but it's ordered and should be here in March. And so with that will come the arrival of our lymphedema program that's going to be headed by Dr. Chong. Our program director is Dr. Brian Le. He is a hand surgeon by training. He trained at NYU. And before that, he was one of our graduating residents. He was a chief resident when I was an intern. So I've known him for uh, quite a while. He is an all around favorite faculty member by the residents. He's very easy to get along with, has an incredibly collegial relationship with us, is often texting the residents to see if anyone wants to go grab a drink with him. I've been on multiple like canoe camping trips with him every summer for the last four years. He's just an all-around great guy and a great person to learn from. I always make fun of him because I can't stand hand surgery. But when he teaches me hand surgery, I'll put up with it. I'll just put it at that because he's so easy to get along with. 
Our APD is Dr. Mansiaris. So she's been with us just over a year, about a year and six months at this point. She's microsurgery trained as well. She's coming to us from MD Anderson for her fellowship. Before that, she was at Albany for her residency. She's been a huge asset, as Anthony mentioned, in the research arena. She's an MD, PhD background and has really rallied the troops in bringing enthusiasm for research efforts here at VCU. Other notable faculty, as we've talked about, Dr. Rhodes is our craniofacial surgeon. I know Dr. Chong is looking to expand the number of craniofacial surgeons that we have, commensurate with the opening of the Children's Hospital. So we're expecting that to, to hit in spring of 2023. Dr. Luppens is our cosmetic surgeon. He, does, he runs the resident cosmetic clinic with the residents, but he also has his own cosmetic practice that includes facelifts and blepharoplasties. He did the Mark Codner Fellowship in Oculoplastics, and so he brings a lot of that expertise to our residency, which is great. So we can get, maybe we don't have a ton of lower lip lefts, but we certainly have a lot of orbital floor fractures. And it's very nice to do that exposure with an oculoplastics trained surgeon rather than try and struggle through it on your own. Sounds good. And what's the total number of faculty you work with? Total, we have seven. And could you tell me about a time when you brought up like an issue to your program leadership and how they responded? This question gets asked a lot and it's, the way I'm approaching this now is they're so responsive. I don't mean this in like a, a kidding or a joking way, but I have to be careful what I say now because I don't want to bring up something that's just like light or trivial or me just having a bad day and I'm just complaining about something. It, because as soon as you talk about things, plans start getting made. It gets starts to look, we got to look into this and see what we can do. So I really mean it genuinely. You have to be careful of the feedback you give because they'll hop on it. Some practical examples of that are, when I was an intern, we used to rotate with another surgical subspecialty. I'll leave them out for the sake of anonymity. We'll protect the innocent. But another surgical subspecialty just really wasn't helpful for me. It was a lot of clinic for completely unrelated things that we will never manage in plastic surgery. And I just didn't really feel like I learned much from it. And so I talked about it. My co-resident had the same impression so we talked about it with our, our PD and that rotation is now gone. We've added in an ortho. So we have an orthopedics resident, our rotation in the intern year, which I think is really valuable. And I wouldn't have thought that, but now I really see how much we do with them and understanding the way they think is, I think, invaluable. So that's just a practical example, a rotation that just really wasn't benefiting me from an educational perspective. We brought it up. And we found something that would be a better fit. And so now we're doing that. But I think it's a very responsive leadership program from that kind of perspective. A question a little bit more directed for Adam, how you were supported like during the fellowship process. Do you feel like there were any particular like nudges or any influence to go into a certain type of fellowship or to go to fellowship at all? Since I've been here to the, that latter question, no, the faculty have never put pressure on any other residents to do anything. So whatever you want to do, the faculty are here to support it. We've had residents that go into fellowship because that's what they want to do. We've had residents that go into fellowship to spend a year while their significant other finishes their training and they're supportive of that. We've had residents that go right into private practice or hospital-based practice and everybody just wants to see you succeed. In recent memory, one of my chiefs, when I was a second year, needed a job in Oklahoma. It's not a fellowship, just a job. Her husband was finishing up his maternal fetal medicine fellowship, and our faculty called around Oklahoma to get her a position there. 
And in fact, she's loved it so much that they've stayed even after he finished his MFM fellowship. From my perspective, I could not say more nice things about the support that I've gotten for my fellowship. So I matched into craniofacial surgery at the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto. It's a premier fellowship. I am over the moon that I was able to get that fellowship. And I know, fine, maybe I did a little bit of work for it, but it was the support of my mentors here at VCU that helped secure me that position. Dr. Rhodes was on the phone probably every day, every other day, calling fellowship directors to get me interviews. There's 31 programs. I was invited to interview at 27 of them. And a lot of that work was done by Dr. Rhodes. I'm not going to pretend that it was all just my glowing CV. It was her doing that work on the back end. The same is true for Dr. Lay. He trained at NYU. He's a hand surgeon. But when I wanted to get an interview at NYU for their craniofacial fellowship, he was on the phone with Dr. Rodriguez trying to see if he can make it happen. And so the faculty are enormously supportive. I've since changed my tune a little bit. I think later on, I'm supposed to give advice to the residents. I think some good advice is really consider small programs strongly, because if the faculty know you that well, that they would go to bat for you that aggressively, it really does help your chances. Because unlike residency match, the fellowship match, people are looking for someone that they're going to spend a very intimate one-year experience with. And so having a strong voice advocating for you is totally clutch, would not change a thing. What role have residents played in department decision-making in terms of things like choosing new residents or as part of the new chair search? For the residents, like choosing new residents, ever since I've been here, both before Dr. Chong and after, the residents have had a pretty integral role in the selection of new residents. So residents interview, if anyone listening to this podcast comes to our interview, you will see that firsthand. And then we also participate in the rank meeting. And everyone has an equal voice in the rank meeting. That's always been the philosophy. So if Megan, one of our interns, says, I have major concerns about this candidate, then everyone will stop and listen to Megan and hear what her concerns are. On the flip side, if Megan says, I really like this candidate, she has the potential to really move their, their standing on our final rank list. In the larger like division-level decision-making, we did have a role in the chair search. We've always had a role in all of the faculty searches. Typically, they'll send us a survey where we can submit our feedback after we've interviewed a candidate. We interviewed Dr. Chong. We interviewed Dr. Mansiaris when she joined us as new faculty. And we've had a role in selecting the program director. The program director had changed about midway through my residency. And it was a discussion with the residents as to which faculty member would take up that role. And Dr. Lay was the natural fit. They're always considering the resident's opinion in terms of department level or division level decision making, which I really value. And so much so that the chief residents are sitting in on the faculty meetings now, not to be anything other than the resident perspective, but the fact that they would seat a resident at that kind of level meeting is really important in terms of hearing the resident's voice. And how would you say your program promotes diversity and inclusion and or helps you develop into a culturally competent resident? Yeah, so one thing I'll mention is it's honestly going to be a shameless plug too for, for all of maybe future learners and people that can find out. We do have a scholarship program for underrepresented minorities in plastic surgery that was actually developed and started this year, which is just a really exciting thing to talk about because different from other things, this was developed from the residency itself. So residents came up with this idea. We presented it to faculty and we were able to come up with a plan to really help create a more diverse field of plastic surgery, which 
I think we all as a field are coming to understand is necessary for us to become the best field we can in the future. Some like specifics about that, we are hoping to offer this scholarship to medical students to perform a visiting rotation to come for us, we have a $3,000 scholarship to offset the costs of travel and room and board. And one of the other things that's really awesome about this program is this was developed with donations from our program itself. So this was residents and faculty putting money together to start this off. And we're hoping to be able to get this into an official fund that would be able to continue into perpetuity. But for next year, we're hoping to give our award to our first applicant. So really excited about that putting your money where your mouth is. So words are great and all, but you have to have actions is something that I think. So anybody that's possibly listening and has a friend that's going to apply in future years, have them check out our application. Now, if you could describe the culture and camaraderie amongst the residents. This is honestly my favorite part about residency here. We have talked a lot about operating and our clinical experience. And I think that's obviously the number one necessary thing. If you're here and you're having a great time but not learning anything, it's a waste of time. But when you're here learning and you like the people you're with, it's just the best experience possible. And so I really feel strongly about it. If you're not happy with each day, then it's just going to be a miserable experience in residency. And you just don't have the emotional stamina to just keep going. But the residents as a group, we get along fantastic. I consider them my friends as well. These are people that you go through. It's almost like going through uh, the really hard times just brings you all together too. You're tired. You're learning a lot. It is stressful. I don't think any of us would lie and say that residency is just so, it's just all roses and candy. It's just, it's not. But we have a great family environment here. I am texting memes to my attendings every day. I'm just really showing people who I am as a person. I don't feel any need to sugarcoat who I am or try to hide or present a different way when I'm with people. I'm allowed to be my 100% genuine self with people every day, which can be a little scary for others, but it's the way it is here. And so I think one of the other questions, what makes us work as a group or something like that? But we're all so strongly individual from each other. We are so passionate about our individual pursuits. When you look at us independently, it's like, how does that group of people make sense? They come from all these different places. Nobody has a background like mine. Adam has a completely different background from the other people. And yet we have different interests, personality types, but then together, we just have a great time. We text each other all the time. I'm over at John's house, one of our fifth-year residents all the time. He just had a new baby. His baby is, I happen to be his baby's favorite person, but that's a side point. But we just have a great time with each other. And I can't say it enough. It sounds maybe chintzy, but we are really good friends. And so that's what makes VCU fun and exciting for me. And so it makes me glad I'm here too. Are there any kind of like universal qualities you'd say that could apply to most people? very passionate about your individual pursuits. I think that if you met Adam, he's probably the best pastry chef you're ever going to meet in your life. All the people in New York and Paris just better watch out because he's coming. He's going to do a craniofacial and then open a bakery right underneath of practice. And then we have John who, if you meet John, when he finds a certain thing, it's that at 10,000 miles an hour right now, it's barbecue. So we've all eaten way more barbecue than you would ever imagine in your life. It just trickles down like that. We have Olga running marathons every week. 
So that's what I mean by strongly passionate about their pursuits. We have that personality trend. We're all in surgical subspecialties. We don't ever do anything at a reasonable pace. Everything's 10,000 miles per hour for us in each of our different categories. And that's, what's really fun is the fact that we like what other people are doing. So I'm never going to cook as well as Adam, but I love to support him in his journey. And I love to support John with his stuff. So that's what sets us apart. Anthony is uh, not casting himself in, in as good a light as possible because he made macaron that were out of this world. Just to add a, a final point to that, I think, as Anthony mentioned, we're all very unique and different. We probably are bound together by food to some extent because when we get together, one of us is usually cooking and alcohol. I'm drinking. It seems like a, a necessity of residency. We are a Peloton program. I do not have a Peloton. And it's like down <laughs> to attendings have Pelotons, nurse practitioners have Pelotons. And we have one attending that likes to pit the residents against each other with to see whose powers are higher. So like we are a Peloton program. Friendly competition. It's not friendly. It's all out. (laughs) So do most tend to own or rent? We are split pretty evenly down the middle. You are very able to own homes in Richmond. And then if you want to rent, that's perfectly fine. I bought my house. It's been a great investment. The market's kind of at a peak right now. It may be a little bit harder to buy, but there's certain a Taylor, one of our second year residents just bought a house. So it's still doable. You just have to look a little longer than maybe when I bought six years ago, because I'm old now and things have changed. How long does your commute tend to be from the hospital? Generally not more than 10 minutes. And I walk 10 minutes. Yeah. Anthony lives close enough that he can walk. Most of us drive and it's always 10 minutes or so. Probably the one resident Brooks, he lives out in the suburbs and, and that's because he's got three kids. So he's got the longest commute, but it's still only like 15, 20 minutes. You mentioned a couple residents with kids. What's the split of people being single, married, and having kids? And if you could touch on a little bit of the maternity, paternity benefits and how the program supports residents with families. The split is pretty even in terms of like single married. Brooks has kids and John has a baby. And Bob is expecting. So probably that's three of 11 that have kids or have them on the way. And then it's about 50-50 for like long-term relationships versus single. The maternity, paternity benefits. So there is ACGME like required maternity leave for anyone who is expecting a child who is a female resident. And then our, our local GME has pushed for paternity benefits, which have been approved as of two years ago, I think. When John's wife had their baby, he was out, I think it's three weeks. For paternity leave. Just because I don't have kids or don't plan on having kids in residency, I haven't really truthfully spent that much time thinking about it, but I know that there's a period of time for paternity leave in addition to maternity. And then outside of that, we as residents tried to support both John and Brooks had children in the past year. And we as residents additionally made changes within our call schedule to help support them to have not have nights of call immediately after birth. So that just highlights the fact that we do have a collegial resident cohort as well. And what else do you like about living in Richmond? So I was never from Virginia. I'd had very little exposure to it. I was from the Midwest and then trained in South Carolina. And so for me, the concept of Virginia just didn't really know it was a state for a while, but I have come to love it so much here. It has everything that I wanted in a city. I like the urban environment. So I chose to rent an apartment more downtown because that's the style of living that I enjoy. But it has the urban lifestyle. It has access to all the things that I wanted in a larger city. 
however, has zero traffic. Like I said, it takes 10 minutes to pretty much get anywhere in the city, I feel like. It also has access to more rural activities. We have the James River that runs through the city. It's just a real highlight of Richmond itself. It has whitewater rafting. Literally, you see the downtown skyline and you're also whitewater rafting at the same time, which is pretty awesome. It's The river is also has a deep water port associated with it. So you can actually take a boat from Richmond all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. I did that this summer, but I only stopped, I went all the way down to Williamsburg and back, which was an awesome day trip. So we have outdoor activities, we have parks, we have an amazing food scene, which Adam and I probably have partake a little bit too much of. And we have like high class dining as well. So we have James Beard Foundation winning restaurants. We have restaurants featured in best new restaurants of the U.S. So all those kind of things. We have a lot of breweries. We have a lot of wineries because of Virginia's wine country is just to the west of us. So I think there's a little bit of everything for what you want. We have the VMFA, which is another one of our kind of hallmark institutions of the city, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, which really has one of the most outstanding art collections that I've been to. And I've one of those weirdos that loves going to art museums. And I just love having it here because there's happy hours on Friday night with just access to all this. It's free. So to be able to go and see Fabergé eggs whenever you want for free, what more could you ask for it? The city's very well rounded. The food is great here. I'm a huge food enthusiast, as Anthony's kind of alluded to. And so as someone who's a bit of a foodie, and likes to cook it and also eat it, it's been great to explore all the different cultures and cuisines that we have here in Richmond. You wouldn't expect it. And there it is. It's, it's everything you could want. Tons of outdoor activities. If you like the mountains, the, the trails are just about two hours away. I just got back from a hike last weekend, Thanksgiving weekend. And I know a lot of our residents like to get out there to go on hikes. John goes out routinely. So does Brooks. The river cuts through the city. If you're a cyclist outside of the Peloton world, if you want to get on a real bike, there are opportunities to do that. We've got a 60 mile road trail that is really nice because it's totally protected from the, the rest of the traffic. Great place to live. As far as like livability and when you're looking for people looking towards cities and where they want to live. I've always had the mindset of if you listen to residents talking about their program and all they can talk about is how easy it is to get somewhere else, then that's probably not going to be a great place to live. Because honestly, in your first few years, you're going to get one day off, two days off. The amount of times you have two days off in a row is low in residency. And so that doesn't afford the opportunities to get places. So you need to be in a place where you don't mind leaving the hospital and liking that day from Friday night at six o'clock till Monday morning, you want to maximize all those opportunities. So if people are talking about how easy it is to get somewhere else, then it's not the place for you. So here we love it. We have tons of stuff. I'm happy. And I think the rest of our residents are too. That's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about. Any final thoughts either on your program or on the process of choosing this is a stressful time for you you guys as you're moving through fourth year. It's hard to get a sense of a program in a Zoom interview, but don't fret. It's also hard to get a sense of a program in an in-person interview. So you're not necessarily missing out by doing things on Zoom. You're just saving a ton of money and missing a bunch of really boring hospital tours. Keep an eye on the programs that are a little bit smaller. Don't forget about us because there are some real hidden gems out there. I'd consider VCU among them, but we're not the only one. And you can get a great experience wherever you go. And if you're worried about fellowship matching, as I was when I was in your shoes, now that I've gone through the process, if, if you work hard and you have good support, you can go anywhere you want. So you just want to pick the places that are going to 
make you shine, not necessarily uh, the place that maybe has the fanciest name. And wherever you shine is going to be what's going to set you up for success in your future career. And how could interested students find out a little bit more about your program? So another shameless plug for our Instagram, you can go ahead and follow us. It's VCU Plastic Surgery Residency. And you can see we try to keep that as updated as possible. And we post plenty on there and you can always direct message. And that's a great way to contact us if you have more questions. Fantastic. Adam, Anthony, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, Jenna, thanks for putting this together. You should be enormously proud of this. It's going to be a huge resource. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.